and welcome to the Wise Women in Waste podcast series with me, Debbie Hitchin, Director of Sustainable Production and Consumption at Anthesis, and my co-host Claudia Amos, Technical Director for Circularity, Resource Efficiency and Waste. If you've joined us in our previous episodes, you'll know that we're co-hosting a short series of podcasts that use informal conversation to explore the trends and opportunities in our sectors through the lens of women like us. We're inviting inspiring women in the waste and circularity industry to discuss our passion for the work that we do and provide some industry insights and knowledge along the way. We've invited two Anthesis colleagues to join us today. Pearl Nemet, Global Sustainable Chemistry Coordinator, who's based in our Manchester office in UK, and Jess Onesco, our Associate Director for Sustainable Chemistry and Products, based in North America. In this podcast, we're going to discuss what it's like to be a woman working in the sector. And we're also going to dive into our technical topic, which is eco-design for sustainable products and the regulation ESPR. I think before we go into the technical part of this podcast, would you mind telling us a bit more about your career pathways and how these have led to your current roles in a thesis and why you're so interested in ESPR? Pearl, do you want to start? Yeah, let's go. So I've started uh, to deal with reach as a sort of by chance. I was doing an internship at the Hungarian oil company. And that time reach was going through its legislative process uh, to become a regulation. It was in the second reading phase and they didn't quite know what to do with my time. I spent a month. So they just passed it over to me to start reading it. My mentor at that time was monitoring all new relevant EU Uh, environmental legislations. He knew so much. He has six university degrees just to sort of keep his mind in training. He's an amazing expert. So obviously I found his career very inspirational. And the other person at that time who also inspired me a great deal is the Hungarian reach expert. Even today, well after his retirement, anyone with a question on reach can go to him and he will answer great technical expertise pro bono. During his active years, he was invited all over the world to look at chemical technologies and suggest improvements toward sustainable chemistry. So my very first personal career objective was to acquire an expertise that makes it worth for someone to invite me to talk about it. I've been doing different roles since then, both in industry and then in consultancy. But the same thing that keeps me excited is that this topic has so many aspects. You can work with different people with different backgrounds. There is just so much to learn. And things are moving so fast that you can't stop learning. So every day really is different for me. Since then, REACH has been implemented, reached its first milestones and matured a lot. And now, once again, I have to look at what's coming. Some of my work is in policy development. And I find it super exciting that even play a teeny tiny role in how legislation is being introduced in a way that it has this great sustainability ambitions and moving towards sustainable chemistry, but it's also practical and achievable. And being able to do that today, when the EU recognized that they cannot achieve climate goals without circularity and cannot achieve circularity without looking at chemicals. So chemicals are now popping up all over the place place in ESPR, in Green Claim Directive, Taxonomy, and, and so on. So this is just really the cherry on top. There is a lot to keep up uh, with, for sure, but it's just super exciting times. Super, thanks so much. So definitely a hunger for knowledge and learning, I hear through there. What about you, Jess? What led you to a career 
with us and being so important in our sustainable chemistry practice in the U.S. Yes, I always love hearing about everyone's journey into sustainability. You know, I entered my career when sustainability was just a word, you know, and some companies had sustainability report, but very few had a good idea of what sustainability was. And I would say that I fell into that group of lack of knowledge of what sustainability was. And like Pearl, I started my career in the chemical industry working in regulatory compliance. I primarily wrote material safety data sheets back when they were called material safety data sheets, they're safety data sheets today. And for those of those listening who don't know what a safety data sheet is, it's a paper that accompanies chemical products that lists the hazardous components of a given chemical product. And it's meant to help those using transporting, handling the chemical products to use and handle and transport them safely, fundamentally. You know, their utility is much broader than that. But the important thing that I learned in authoring safety data sheets is we lack a lot of information. Uh, It's getting better over the years, but eons ago when I was writing them, we lacked a lot of information on the hazardous properties of chemicals. And the dissemination of that information across supply chains was really lagging, right? I always call it, it's supposed to be chemical management, but really it was chemical mismanagement. Companies really didn't know about the the hazardous chemicals in their products. And it's something I took for granted, right? As a, a newcomer out of college, I thought, of course, companies know what chemicals are in their products. And of course they're safe. You know, and if I had known about sustainability at the time, I would have said, oh, I, of course they're safe and sustainable by design. But I quickly realized that that was not the case. And so I really started to sort of do some, I think, professional professional soul searching, if you will, where, where do I want this knowledge to take me? How can I truly benefit and help organizations to manage their chemicals better and to bring safer products to market? And that's when I found this master's program in sustainable engineering. And I really started to even think beyond just hazardous chemicals and started thinking more holistically about products and how we can truly design chemicals, materials, products to be more safe and sustainable by design. And and since then, I've been helping companies do just that, which is why I'm really excited. You know, if I think about my career trajectory and where it's taken me to today, right, from companies and regulations not addressing sustainability to now we have the ESPR and companies really taking actions on sustainability. I'm super excited that this is where the path has led us and that now we can really start to level the playing field and take action and create a more resource efficient world. I think that's just such an interesting introduction. So what really strikes me from listening to you, Jess, is the way in which sustainability has gone on that maturity curve, you know, where we've moved from just reporting on what's being done right the way through now to understanding how it's integral to everything we do. And and I think that's so interesting also in how it demystifies chemistry. So Pearl, you talked about your mentor having six degrees and, you know, how in sort of the beginning of my career, I think sustainable chemistry was a mystery. It was in the realms of academia and and maybe policy development. And yet you've just shown us through your introductions how it's sort of become really front and centre in the 
sustainable development pro processes for for products of the future. And Pearl and I, we were in a meeting uh, just last week where we established or coined a phrase, chemistry is everything. And I think it's true because chemistry is in everything, whether it's, you know, the products that we use every day to day or whether it's the supper we're going to make later this evening. So I think it's great to have you here. And I'm really excited to get into this conversation. But before we do, I'm also conscious we've already used a number of acronyms. And I've been at several networking events recently where people were cursing this industry for the development of yet more acronyms. So perhaps we could start by just diving in a little bit into what ESPR is, what that acronym means, and perhaps just understanding how it fits within the EU Green Deal and what we might expect it to deliver. So Pearl, can you kick us off with your definition of ESPR, please? Yeah, so the acronym stands for Eco-Design for Sustainable Products Regulation, but at this point in time, it's really a proposal for a framework regulation. It will allow the European Commission to set sustainability, performance and information requirements for products. So this means that you cannot look up the requirements for a specific product just yet because those will be implemented by specific delegated acts. It's also a significant piece of legislation because it will introduce key terms into EU law such as environmental footprint, durability, refurbishment and beyond the sustainability requirements it has two more key pillars. One is the digital product passport, which will bring increased sustainability transparency. And the third one is a potential ban on the destruction of unsold consumer products. Which are all really excellent and very much needed. There's been quite a bit of media coverage, actually, over the last month or so since the MEPs voted to support the green labelling and prevention of greenwashing proposals. And that also included product durability and longevity, didn't it? So it's great to see this happening. But can you tell us a little bit more about the sort of process that proposals go through before they become binding? So how it starts, the Commission has the right of initiative of any legislation. So as they say, they have the pen. They draft the legislation and they send it over to the Parliament and the Council. So at the moment, the ESPR is waiting for committee decision, which means that the committees within Parliament are looking at it. This means this, this is the first reading stage. They can adopt it reject it or propose amendments. And in sort of parallel and not uh, in complete isolation, the council is also looking at it. But first, the, the parliament needs to make a decision. And after they kind of agreed their own set of conclusions, so the parliament and the council as well, then an informal discussion stage starts, which is called the trialogue, where all three main bodies, the Commission, the Parliament and the Council, all come together and try to come up with a final text. The timeline, uh, how it looks like at the moment, so we are expecting adoption of the final text around Q1 2024, then publication and typically a transition period follows. At the moment, what we hear is that most probably a two-year transition period will be uh, implemented. And in parallel, the Commission is also gathering comments on the first batch of priority products, but I think we will touch uh, on that aspect a bit later. Great. That is really I don't know, a very comprehensive overview of the European regulations. So thank you so much for that. That was really useful. And I know I normally have done a complicated question. So this one is a very simple one. Which product does it cover and who's impacted by these regulations? 
So the scope of products covered by the framework regulation is incredibly broad. Only a few specific product groups are excluded, such as food and feed and uh, medicinal products. The aim is to improve the environmental sustainability for most of the products placed on the European market. So I've read it somewhere that about 30 new delegated acts are expected by 2030. So the impact, in fact, could be enormous if done properly. Most of the products uh, sold in the EU could have better environmental sustainability performance. So if you remember the Eco-Design Directive, which is basically the predecessor of the ESPR, it's only focusing on energy-related products. And when they started, they set energy efficiency requirement and set up these scales from A to G. But then as uh, technology and uh, legislative requirements increased, really the products achieved A, A+, A++, and even higher energy efficiency rating. So in 2021, they returned to the A to G scales, but with stricter requirements. So this sort of improvement could be multiplied across many more product groups, not just uh, energy-related products, and across quite a few um, sustainability aspects. To bring it more alive, the current public consultation that I mentioned uh, a little bit earlier, that is looking for contributions which should be the first product uh, groups that will be addressed by specific delegated acts. They mention furniture, tires, mattresses, cosmetic products, toys, fishing nets, but also included intermediate products such as metals, chemicals, plastics, paper, glass. And if you think about it, these materials I just listed is really in any sort of products in, for example, in a DIY store. So you can see the enormity of the scope. And going even further, there are also so-called horizontal requirements included in the public consultation. These are uh, at the moment durability, recyclability and recycled content. And so as horizontal potential, the requirement, this could have an even wider scope. So ultimately, anyone who is placing a product on the EU market will be impacted, except for the few exemptions, including companies in North America and other non-EU geographies. So just sort of building on what Pearl stated, right? Any company that manufactures products, places, or distributes products on the EU market is impacted by the legislation. And so, you know, I want to dig a little bit deeper into what that actually means, because the legislation impacts the way products are designed, manufactured, and marketing in the EU. And fundamentally, that means that within the organizations, within the companies, everybody who's responsible for the design, the manufacturing, and the marketing of products, their roles will be impacted by this piece of legislation. So that means research and development, product development, procurement, sourcing, regulatory, sales and marketing, operations, all of these actors in the organization will have to adapt to the ESPR. They'll have to understand the ESPR and act accordingly. And that's really critical to know because I think when you put it in that context, it helps you understand the the bigger impact that this proposed legislation has within an organization. The other component of this legislation is that this legislation also impacts how product-related information is collected, how it is managed, 
and how it is shared across the supply chain. And so if you think about everyone who needs to be involved in the collection, management, and sharing of information, product-related information across the supply chain, those individuals within the organization and supply chain will also be impacted. And so you can see that there are potentially broad implications due to ESPR as it stands and is proposed today. Thanks. And is it possible to try to bring this to life a little bit for us and tell us a little bit about what you think the requirements might look like in a specific sort of organization? Yes, of course. So, for example, if you think about a toy manufacturer who is placing plastic animals on the market, a delegated act might require this product to be more durable, easier to be recycled, certain level of secondary material content, uh, certain substances of concern could be banned. Its life cycle environmental impact, including the carbon footprint, could be required to be lower or requirements could target, for example, expected generation of waste, such as release of microplastics, which crucially for little girls like my daughter could impact litters even. So um, similarly to current bands could be set up for other sustainability aspects as well, or there could be minimum requirements, uh, for example, 20% recycled content and so on. But it is really hard to predict at this point how exactly these will look like, because if you remember the regulation itself, the framework regulation is not yet accepted, so that in the shaping and a lot more consultation and impact assessments are coming before the delegated acts will be in place. And also, we shouldn't uh, forget the information requirements, because the digital product passport is no small feat. It would mean that each product has a digital twin containing information about sustainability performance, how to use it, what to do with it when it reached the end of its useful life with substances of concern it contains and, and so on. So the aim is to trickle this information down along the value chain to the consumer, so to empower the consumers to make informed choices and also to help the recyclers how to deal with the product at end of life. Fabulous. That's a really good example. Jess, do you have anything from your experience kind of like to make it a bit more tangible? Because it's such a big thing, I feel like, that we are not really putting our arms around it properly. Yeah, well, I'm happy that Pearl was able to add some a little bit of context and to provide some tangible examples. And the one key takeaway I would say for those listening is that this isn't the first regulation to have ever been introduced where companies had to develop a strategy prior to sort of the final ruling, if you will. What Pearl highlighted was, and that I get from a lot of clients, right, is that, oh, we don't know what the final delegated acts are going to be. We don't know what the requirements are going to be. So they sort of failed to act or failed to prepare in advance. But there's a lot we do know. There's a lot that the ESPR has already provided to give us some direction on how to start handling and grappling with this piece of legislation internal to an organization. So I would say that unlike other regulations of the past, companies need to get ahead of the ESPR regulation fairly early because of why and how it impacts organizations, the depth and breadth of how it impacts businesses. They can really start to socialize this piece of legislation internally with the various business units that this piece of legislation does impact. 
Thanks, Jess. So in summary, what do you feel are the biggest challenges and how can companies prepare for it right now, taking into account that a lot of regulatory development still needs to take place to get this into its final form? We've done a lot of helping companies navigate complex regulations. We've also done a lot of design for sustainability or other eco-design projects for many clients. And I would say that the first big challenge companies need to face grappling with ESPR is ensuring that they understand the regulation in the context of their business. So understanding how this piece of legislation impacts the various areas of their business. That's the first big challenge. The second big challenge is now that we know how it impacts our business, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to strategically think about ESPR in the context of our business and ensure that we are prepared for the performance requirements, information requirements that accompany the the regulation? So what this means is how are companies going to adapt their product development processes? How are they going to adapt their R&D processes? How is procurement going to need to change how they currently do business to support the requirements under the ESPR? How does the corporate, how does this ESPR currently help or conflict with the existing corporate objectives and how might those need to adapt, right? There's a lot of different pieces here that companies will need to think through and challenges that they are going to have to overcome, but there's a lot of opportunity in this too. But lastly, I would say the biggest challenge for companies um, that they're going to have to overcome, and we've seen this time and time again with, you know, Anytime there's a major regulation that comes through that impacts various areas of the business, we've seen it time and time again, anytime a company has a design for sustainability program that they have is the implementation process, right? So everything always looks good on paper. And I'm sure everyone's been part of an implementation process where this is where things get sticky. And so implementing the requirements into the business is where companies really struggle and have a hard time understanding where to even begin and how this actually looks like and how it actually gets operationalized. So I would say those three things, understanding the ESPR in the context of the business, developing the strategy and action plan, and then implementing what is required under ESPR are some of the biggest challenges companies will need to face. Thank you so much, Jess and Pearl. That was super dense in terms of technical knowledge. And I'm always stunned how much people know and what kind of subject matter expertise is in in people's head on very specific and really important subjects, but also how they all feed back into increasing sustainability, understanding more about impact, understanding more about how we can make a positive impact and not just avoid emissions or avoid hazard or avoid risks. So thank you so much for your contributions today. As always, before we know, we have reached the end of our discussion and uh, I really hope that our audience also found it as interesting as I did. Thank you again. It was really, really nice for you to share your insights and um, then help us to do another great podcast. If you have any comments or questions about anything you've heard in this session or anything that you would like us to cover in the future, please get in touch via the Ancesis Group website or email us or reach out on LinkedIn. Until then, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. <music>